Hi, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Up on our site, the Ringer has just published their first ever fantasy football rankings. Our NFL experts, Danny Kelly, Robert Mays, Danny Heifetz, and more, rank and analyze the top 150 players in 2019 with printable and mobile cheat sheets to take with you wherever you're drafting. To check out our rankings and for more preseason coverage, listen to the Fantasy Football Podcast or head over to theringer.com. Hello and welcome to The Recapables, a podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network about the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. We are going to be talking about season three of Glow today, which just went up on Netflix, and we're trying a little bit of a different approach. So instead of talking about the entire season in one episode or breaking up the season into a couple episodes, we're just going to be focusing on one standout installment, which is episode six of season three, Outward Bound, co-written by Liz Flayhive and Carly Mench, the creators of the show. For those who are spoiler conscious, we are going to be spoiling and breaking down the events of the previous five episodes as well as Outward Bound, and we will not be going into the details of anything that happens later in the season. So you have been forewarned, and that means that I can now introduce my co-host. So I am your host, Allison Herman, and joining me on the other line is fellow Ringer staff writer, fellow glow and possibly wrestling enthusiast, I don't know his background, Michael Bauman. Hi, I've never felt more gorgeous or ladylike. We're so glad to have you in the fairer sex, but, you know, (laughs) I obviously love this show. I have written about it in my capacity as a TV critic, but maybe we can just start by, do you want to talk about why you love Glow, why we're talking about it today? I think, so, Glow is one of those TV shows where it's just a fun group of people to hang out with, and I think that's really important for this kind of, when you're going to spend hours and hours and hours, like, it's so important that you really enjoy and get to uh, get to know the characters. They're all distinct. They're well-developed. Even those who don't have, you know, we're going to talk about this being an ensemble show, but even those who are outside of like the main three or four characters. And it's just, I don't, I can't think of any other, like it's a very specific uh, aesthetic and very specific tone that it sets. Like what we were talking about uh, the very first, the very beginning of the season, I said like I'm eight minutes into uh, into this season, and, and I'm curled up in a ball laughing about the Challenger disaster. And I'm not sure there's another show on TV that really strikes that balance that we're, that could really pull that off. Yeah, I totally agree. And there's a lot of stuff that we could be talking about in this episode that we're going to go past because it's not in it. But like Gina Davis is in this season as a former showgirl who now is the head of the casino. There's the cold open of the entire season is about the Challenger disaster. There's just a lot of great scenes and episodes. The one right before this is where they all switch characters and it's super fun. But I have a take about Glow, which may or may not have occasioned the production of this episode when I aired it in Ringer Slack, which is... This is kind of a weird thing to say about a show that literally just got an Emmy nomination or a few Emmy nominations, but the biggest one was for Betty Gilpin. But I think Glow might kind of low-key be one of the more underrated shows on TV, which is just, it gets a lot of credit for being a really fun hang, which it absolutely is. But I feel like the low-keyness of it and maybe the summer timing of it obscures just how hard what it, it pulls off is to do and the sort of finessing of the character development that is necessary to make the ensemble work. So this show is executive produced by Genji Cohen of Orange is the New Black, and it has the similar, like, very diverse, very rich ensemble, although uh, Liz Flayhive and Carly Mench are the creators and showrunners, and it has that similar 
you know, efficiency, but it has to do it in, like, literally half the time, and it adds the period detail on top of it. And, like, this may seem a little bit of a histrionic comparison, but it really does scratch the itch that series like Mad Men and Halt and Catch Fire have for me, not just because it's also an 80s show, but it's a show about just, like, grown-ups with grown-up problems who talk to each other like adults, and they find so much conflict and stuff to mine in that. And it's just, I'm so glad it's back. Yeah, that's, I don't think that's a a, a reach at all. I think that there's that, that combination of, uh, you know, there's humor, I guess, in Mad Men, there was the seriousness with the great humor sort of uh, layered underneath it. The The itch that this uh, scratches for me is another great uh, Netflix uh, comedy, Lovesick, which was another show that was just very silly and fun on the on the top, but like really emotionally deep. And, I don't, you know, it, this tackles way bigger issues than uh, 20-somethings and sex. But this is a, a similar, like, you go there to laugh and you end up feeling the entire range of emotions. Yeah, and maybe this is a good time to just talk about what's been happening this season. So in the previous two seasons, they've been working in L.A. and trying to make The Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling as a franchise work as a TV show. And now they are in Las Vegas and doing a live show at a casino, which because the show is sort of locked and a lot of the themes of the season have to do with what they do in stasis, I think that really frees them to go down a lot of like narrative rabbit holes that don't have to do with just like putting the show together and writing it and making it work. Like, you can just follow what's going on with Debbie emotionally now that she's separated from her kid and what's going on with Sam and his screenplay. And it really seems to, like, free them up to go into a lot of different avenues. And I think one thing I've really been enjoying watching the season up until this episode is watching Debbie and Ruth, which has always been a really complicated relationship because the show begins by Ruth, the... um sort of lead of the show played by Allison Bree sleeping with Debbie's husband and Debbie finding out about it and their best friendship just totally imploding. And in like probably what I think is the best scene of the show, they have this blowout argument in a hospital in last season. Yeah. And now it feels After like Debbie breaks Ruth's ankle, by the way, like this is a, <laughs> <laughs> let's not gloss over that. This this uh, relationship was fraught to the, the point of hospitalization. Yes, but I feel like it's sort of it becomes the breakthrough point in their relationship because, like, finally Debbie has done something that, like, definitively relinquishes the moral high ground. And now it's like, you have done equally terrible things to each other, if not, like, Debbie has done a worse thing because it involved physical injury. And so it allowed them to, like, really air their baggage and have it out. And now for really the first time in the show, we get, except for, like, the first 20 minutes of the pilot or whatever, we get to see them be, like, actual friends. And it's still a really complicated, naughty relationship that's fun to watch them parse through, but it's not, like, as tense as it has been. Yeah, and it's... The the fact that they've done so many things to each other, like, there's a level... And, like, some of this is just, like, the performances by Betty Gilpin and Allison Brie are so great that uh, they convey a lot of this emotional depth and the, the baggage and history that these two characters have with each other. But... There's almost like a level to which you there's an intimacy that comes from these people having hurt each other and uh, and having gone through just such a weird and, you know, maybe not traumatic, but disruptive experience together uh, 
getting on board with this weird show and sort of reevaluating their own lives and now moving to another state to to put it on and all the weirdness that that comes with living in Las Vegas. So, yeah, this is a, a very emotionally intense friendship that I think I don't know if it's stronger for them having gone through all this, but there's like a level of of they know each other because they've done so many things to each other. Yeah, and I think that's part of it being a, a third season of the show is like now they, they've set up who all these characters, not just Ruth and Debbie, are. And that means that they can just, now that the pretext is done, they can really like dig into it and just tell stories where we're not being introduced to these people anymore. So the big conflict that sets up Outward Bound, the episode we're about to talk about, is that they initially signed on to do this live show at the casino for three months. And we keep seeing lots of characters being like, you know, it's only three months if I just work through it. So Tamay, the character played by Kia Stevens, who um, in the show plays Welfare Queen, there's a lot of like layered, you know, actors playing characters who are also playing characters in this show. So pardon us if we get a little confused. But, you know, Tamay has had this, like, back pain, and she's been telling herself, you know, I just need to push through. Debbie's been separated from her son. She's been telling herself, I just need to push through. And none of them ever really stopped to consider, like, if the show works, it'll be extended. And so Gina Davis's character has offered to let them stay for another nine months. And Bash Howard, the producer of the show, who's dealing with some issues of his own, basically just makes a unilateral decision and says they're going to stay. And before we get really any real updates, like, they appear to have hit pause and decided to go on a group camping camping trip to the Red Rock National Park just outside Las Vegas. And so this episode really eschews a lot. It's still a huge cast, but, like, we don't get Mark Maron's character, Sam, the director. We don't get Bash. We don't get Gina Davis's character. We just get the members of this wrestling show going off to the mountains and working out some issues. Yeah, and, you know, as far one thing I did like about this, just from a, a perspective of form, is it's a bottle episode, and there are all of these like you know characters trapped in in these conversations that you wouldn't ordinarily have unless if you had the the course of your normal life. But it's refreshing to see them like cast out, you know, like instead of being literally locked in a room with someone, they need to have that emotional conversation. They're in the great outdoors, like they're they're out uh, camping, and it's just a you know, a, one of the that's like a, a thoughtful thing that sets this show apart as they think about, you know, just just putting a little bit of a twist on on normal television forms like that. Totally. Which means this is not it's not technically a bottle episode in that like every time you mention the term on TV, Twitter, someone will actually is you. So an old school bottle episode is basically to save production money. Um, you literally lock people in a room and it means you don't have to like go out on big sets. So they take the concept, which is the the byproduct of that penny you know, penny scrimping is that you have all the characters in a room and they bounce off one another. So they still get that, but then you also get the added budget of going outdoors. And I I will say one of the things I really appreciate about Glow as a series is relative to a lot of streaming shows or like 73-hour movies, not to subtweet Game of Thrones, but it they really invest in having individual episodes and they keep the freedom that comes with Netflix and that most of their episodes are like 30 plus minutes. This one is 42 but they also, you know, there's the one where they switch characters, the one with the drag show, the one that's the season premiere. And they really put work into making every chapter distinct in a way that, like, helps the season flow. Yeah, I agree 100% with that. 
So I thought a good way to organize this conversation would just be to show how great this show is at developing not just the top-line characters, but also, you know, the people who don't get as much screen time but still come across as fully realized human beings. We're going to start with Ruth and Debbie, who are— you know, the top build people on the show. Deb, uh, Bet- sorry, Betty Gilpin's supporting nomination notwithstanding. I guess everyone's technically supporting because it's an ensemble show. But them and Sam, I would say, are the core trio. And then yeah. we're going to, as we keep going, we're going to move into um, sort of like B and C plots. But with Ruth and Debbie, they go off on a hike, get separated, and end up having a heart-to-heart in the pitch darkness about both of their lives and struggles. And uh, it's just a great moment for this this relationship that we've seen develop so much over the course of the show. Yeah, and it's, while they were, you know, at some points not on on speaking terms, we saw them develop friendships with other pe- other members of the cast. We see, like, two of my favorite friendships that developed are Ruth and Sheila and uh, Tamay and, and Debbie, and they, w- we see that in this episode, but it's been a while since, like, these two have just really gone back to, you know, their roots and, and origins as, as best friends and like that. My favorite scene in the show is when they're in the dark and you know, we're going to talk about this, I guess, but like, I don't know that that was the highlight of the episode for me was watching the two of them sort of get back to, to where they were for really the the first time and, and, you know, shed a lot of that baggage. Yeah. And I think, so what they're both bringing into it is Betty opens character. Debbie doesn't want to be away from her son and is already right. experiencing a ton of guilt over the fact that she's in Vegas, he's in L.A., and she's already missed him walking. And that's been just triggering a lot of anxieties about her identity as a mother versus her, versus her identity as an actress and an aspiring producer. And, you know, she's been kind of kicking the can down the road, and that's all coming to a head. And then with Ruth, she entered into— a, She's also in a long-distance relationship, but with her boyfriend. And Sam, Mark Maron's character, has just professed his love for her and kind of put the ball in her court in terms of how she wants to respond to that. So they both have things that are, like, weighing on their mind. And it's really interesting, at least to me, to watch them have a conversation with, like, very different perspectives that show that they're not necessarily, like, peas in a pod, but that's not them having a blowout fight, you know? Yeah, I mean, it just goes back to what we've been talking about, that they understand each other. Like, one of the, the best lines from this conversation was uh, when Debbie was talking about what her obituary would be if they never found the camp, and she goes through a resume, and uh, Ruth says something like, well, mine would be soap star and random unidentified woman found in a, in a or wherever it was, in, in a field or wherever. Um, yeah, it, that's that gets to, I think, what, what you were saying about, you know, they're they're not coming from the same place, but they understand each other. Yeah, and we actually have a clip of the sort of their heart-to-heart. Maybe you feel lost because you're holding yourself back from something that you want. <laughs> so what, I'm supposed to go back to the hotel, tell Sam I love him, and then what, we ride off into the sunset? Jesus, I- you love him? What? <laughs> then yeah, that's what you should do. I mean, what the hell do I know? I don't even know how to be a producer, which is technically my job title that I fought for, that Bash has basically just rendered meaningless. So at least if I go home to Randy, he'll, he'll need me. You know, I, I think I avoid talking about Randy. 
whole part of your life I never want to touch because that's fine. But why don't you bring him to Vegas? You want to work. You want to be with your kid. I, I don't know how to solve any of the other problems, but that's a start. Right, because it's such a great place for children. <laughs> you probably like the flashing lights <laughs> and the noise. There's a pool. Jello <laughs> at the buffet. <laughs> yeah, I just love this so much because, like, we have such shared history, and this shows that they've finally gotten to a place where Ruth can, like, talk to Debbie about her family life, which, you know, she doesn't say explicitly because it's still too painful, but she's kind of like, I've always avoided talking to you about your family and your identity as a mother because, like, uh, I put that in danger. That seems pretty explicit to me. She didn't say because I fucked your husband, but, like, that's, yeah, I mean, the, she comes right that's as the close edge. to the, yeah, that's as close to to saying that as you can come. Yeah, but it's it's just interesting that, like, they have gotten to the place where they can now talk with still a lot of emotion, but, like, you know, Ruth can say, I understand you and I understand every part of you. And like, now I can finally talk to you about this part of your life, which has, you know, on the love life side of things now includes Debbie, like fucking her way through every valet, which Mm -hmm. is just a subplot that I love and adore so much because it recognizes that Betty Gilpin is maybe one of the most beautiful people alive. So I feel like that probably covers. So they come out of it at the end of the episode, Ruth decides, she also talks with Timmy, which you mentioned is one of those relationships the side ones that's been really developed because they're both working mothers. So Debbie decides that she's probably going to take Randy, her son, with her to Las Vegas. And Ruth resolves to tell Sam that she reciprocates his feelings and then finds out that he is checked out of the hotel. So that's kind of the bigger plot machinations in this episode. But one person I'm really excited to talk about is Sheila the She-Wolf. Are we we just going to gloss over our disagreement over whether that's like a positive development or whether it's really icky? Okay, fine. We can talk about Ruth and Sam. I am of the opinion that Allison Brie and Mark Marin really sell this chemistry. And also, I really appreciated that in their hot tub conversation in episode two, they address the elephant in the room and have Ruth actually say, like, you're almost twice my age. That makes me a little uncomfortable about the possibility of pursuing a relationship. But I I ship it against my own better judgment. Yeah, I don't. I think, yeah, I, I just sort of had an instinctive, like, it almost... I would be even less uh, receptive uh, than I am already if the show weren't uh, created created and mostly written by women, just because like that feels like the you know the the cranky al- alcoholic writer ending up with the the woman half his age is just such a you know it's a trope and it's gross. Much like I think you know I said said to you earlier that like Sam is one of those characters who like I can smell. You know, I I don't see him on TV so much as like I'm just aware of the the stale air and cigarette smoke around him, and like you know I I know he's working out and he's he's trying to live right and be a good dad and everything. I just you know I agree that that the two of them sell the chemistry, but it it's just icky. And the other thing is like if that happens, where do you go? You know, there's I, I don't know if if like she you know they get together, she realizes it's a mistake, and then. uh you know, that that sort of tears the ensemble apart or, you know, if, if they if this is like the start of of the two of them sort of dancing around each other in like this interminable Ross and Rachel from Friends way. Um, it's 
I, I just, I have like a, a natural revulsion to it, but also like I worry about where this goes from a, a narrative standpoint. And I also haven't watched farther ahead than than episode six. So if they if this does get resolved, then then don't tell me. But well, that may be why they're only starting to like explicitly address the question of whether these two characters should be together in season three. And even like we're past the halfway mark of season three, and we're only at the point of like. Ruth has decided she has feelings, but then there's immediately an obstacle in the form of Sam, like, literally leaving town. And so they're, I think they're pacing it about right for something that you're right is going to, like, fundamentally alter the relationships in this ensemble. But, yeah, I, I just think, like, they've they've planted the seeds. And, like, in real life, May-December romances, or I guess this is probably more, like, June-October, but, like, they do happen. Oh, the way Sam smokes, it might be December. <laughs> That's a fair point. You know, they do happen and people who like work together in really intense situations, like it just makes sense to me. And it is, I think, presented from her point of view. And also, I think it's probably worth acknowledging that the character of Sam does feel a little bit to me like a female written fantasy, not in a bad way. Like this is a comedy fundamentally. So like people are nice and like each other. But like, you know, a person like that in real life would probably not be so evolved as to be, be a like, total creep. Like everything leading up to that we see about Sam leads up to we found it. We find out that guy is a creep later on in real life. But like you said, this is not this is not reality. This is fantasy. And, you know, I, th- I think there's plenty of room for female fantasy in uh, in narrative fiction. God knows we've seen enough, enough male fantasy. That is true. And also, you know, just the fact that, like, they have her, like, be reluctant to reciprocate because she, like, consciously understands all the things we just talked about, I think is important. It's not, like, an immediate, like, oh, yeah, like, this is a great idea. But, um... The other thing is, it's like, I, I, I think my instinctive reaction also didn't factor in how weird Ruth is. And there's something to, like, maybe, like, this is the only kind of person she really feels that connection with. Oh, yeah. And you get a little bit of that in the um, her boyfriend visiting in the fourth episode and just how she immediately, like, doesn't know what to do with her feelings and freaks out and starts kind of, like, trying to put distance by triggering fights and, do, and, like, acting out. But, yeah, that's kind of my favorite thing about Glow is that it, it really leans into both, like, how off-putting the theater kid archetype in general is and how, like— Someone like Ruth, who I feel like in a more basic show would just be like the person you're rooting for because she's an underappreciated talent, is is allowed to be really annoying and off-putting. And you understand why people have not, you know, welcomed her with open arms into the entertainment industry and why it's so liberating for her to play this heel with, you know, some exceptions like last week when she got to play the, like, Nebraskan dainty milkmaid version of Liberty Bell. I think that clears the road to talk about Sheila, who I think is the secondary character outside of the the core cast that we were talking about earlier, who gets the richest and most interesting and well-developed arc this season that obviously comes to, like, a really pivotal point this time around. Yeah, she's—I I would definitely say she's my favorite of the, the supporting characters, um, and I'm definitely, like, starting to—like, I've—, I've like I'm rooting for her really hard. She ended up being like the the most sympathetic person, and uh, you know somebody that you know in terms of we're seeing like a literal physical transformation. But uh, you know she's grown the most from what she could, what she started as, and what that character could have been to what she is now. 
Yeah, so this is a character who goes by Sheila the She-Wolf, whose wrestling persona is not really a persona. It's just a way for her to live the way that she lives everyday life, but, you know, not to stick out, to actually blend in. And I think, you know, they never give, like, a term for how she identifies. I feel like if this were, like, Tumblr today, she would identify as, like, trans species or something, but— one of the things I like is that they they don't explicitly explain her perspective so much as they just, like, allow her to embody it. And having done that for two seasons, this season she starts to kind of hit a wall. Like, she does an acting class earlier where the instructor is like, your inability to, you know— leave this costume means that I can't believe you as other people. And obviously he's a huge asshole about it. But then, I mean, my favorite individual scene this season was probably when she goes to the drag show and the drag queen, whose name is Bobby, who becomes a pretty significant figure in this season of Glow, sees her and just immediately recognizes her as a kindred spirit. And they don't say, you know, oh, you're just like me, but you immediately just, like, understand that what drag does for Bobby in terms of allowing him to, like, live his most authentic self, that's what being a wolf does for Sheila. And because there's that level of shared understanding, that has allowed her to start opening up. And very entertainingly, last episode, Bobby puts her up in Liza Minnelli drag, and she's able to throw herself into that with all the commitment of someone who's, like, very secure in themselves, which I loved. Yeah, and that was, like— not just seeing that, like that was obviously a wow moment for in the show. Uh, cause you know, we never, I don't remember if we have literally never or hardly ever seen Sheila outside of the, the wolf persona, but the, the reaction of the rest of the, the cast, like the cast of, you know, cast of glow, uh, just the, the happiness and excitement and like, you know, it's there's like shock and surprise, but like even like saying shock and surprise is like sort of that that carries like a negative judgmental connotation. Like they were just all really excited to see her like really come out of her shell like that. And I like moments like that really reinforce the the ensemble, like the the these are fun people to hang out with element that I think makes this show so great. Yeah, it's not like a thank God finally type of reaction yeah, I get. It's, it's like an acknowledgement that this is a, a mark of progress for her. Yeah, and like, you know, they all accepted her and liked her when she was the wolf persona, and now they're excited to see, like, see her explore something new. Yeah, so that was sort of a, a one-time break in the persona, but then in this episode, she goes on this sort of, you know, I thought like pleasantly hokey vision quest where she refuses to drink water while she's on a hike. She sees a wolf and it, it leaves. And that kind of leaves her spiritually prepared to, at one point, she just like literally throws her entire wolf disguise into the fire. And uh, the next morning she emerges and she's just, you know, wearing a, a normal outfit and wearing her normal hair. Not so, exactly a normal outfit. Oh, yeah. She's like, wearing like <laughs> underpants and a windbreaker. But, you know, clearly she did not pack for this, right. this eventuality. More normal than the alternative. Yeah. But, and we yeah. should probably give a, sh- a shout out to the actress Gail Rankin, who has portrayed Sheila for three seasons. She is also currently in uh, Her Smell, the film by Alex Ross Perry. And that's really great. But, um, yeah, there's, like, a great clip of when she's talking to Ruth, who she's formed this bond with because they were roommates, um, and talks about, like, why she decided to relinquish this costume. (laughs) Why did you do that? I was getting in my way. 
There are so many things that I want to do and become. But yeah, I mean, Sheila is just someone who I feel like could easily be a a comic side character. And they don't, like, verbalize a lot of her development. They just give her enough space and enough moments that you really understand her journey, even though she's obviously, like, an incredibly unusual person. And But at the same time, one thing I like the most about the character is she, like, this is the kind of show where the, the, whatever you would call you know, the wolf persona, like that person is sort of the voice of reason. And like she gets, uh, when she and Ruth get tossed together, they end up spending a lot of time together because, um, because Debbie's freezing Ruth out. And because, uh, you know, everybody else thinks Sheila's weird. Like you, she becomes like this almost like chorus like figure. Like she's just keenly observing what's going on and just being really frank about it. And that like, that's you, that really drove home at the very beginning of the show that like, this is not, just a punchline this is a a fully developed you know adult human character in this kind of strange uh clothing and now like i don't know i have no idea what's what's going to happen next it's very interesting to to see her you know this has been one of the the highlights of the season is watching that evolution because you know you feel like it was always building to something like this with the the acting class and the, the drag show scene but yeah this is uh this is a huge moment yeah, totally. And even, like, this season, she's the one who's explaining to all of them how to gamble when they're mm-hmm. let loose on the floor of the casino, and she's the one who shows up to work out. And even, you know, a small detail, we learn um, from her heart-to-heart with Bobby that she is from Baltimore, but the the title of the episode, Outward Bound, comes from her just casually saying, like, yeah, when I was a kid and I had anger issues, my parents sent me on this trip. And I, I love that as in, like, it's the smallest thing, you could easily miss it. But it's just a hint that it's like she has some emotional issues that maybe this helped her to process and there's not too much made of it but you kind of get an idea in your head of like where this person's coming from and why they would choose to live their lives this way yeah it's uh i mean everything's a coping mechanism on some level that's great we come to the show (laughs) we come to the show for therapy and uh good psychological insight like that so I think the the final major plot that we're going to talk about, which, again, is with members of the ensemble who are even less prominent usually than Sheila or, you know, Tamay or anyone like that, is the best friendship between Melanie Rosen, whose wrestling persona is Melrose, which is this kind of, like, young teenager, like— little too old for her actions party girl, and Jenny, who is both the costume designer for the show, but— a really interesting theme that Glow loves to explore and is is echoed in the real-life world of wrestling is how certain characters, especially the ones of color, will play characters in the show who are clearly based on racist stereotypes. And in some ways, that can be empowering and allow them to reclaim it. And in other ways, it opens them up to harassment in the case of Artie slash Beirut. It makes them feel guilty in the case of Tamei and Welfare Queen. And I feel like Jenny is the one, she plays a character named Fortune Cookie, who is obviously like a really exaggerated Asian stereotype. And she hasn't quite gotten the developed arc with that side of herself that Artie or um, Tamei has. And in the personality flipping thing last episode, Melanie does fortune cookie and like does the exaggerated racist character, which obviously plays very differently coming from a white woman. And in this episode, they start to like hash out that baggage because in classic bottle episode fashion, they're basically forced to because they're out in the wilderness together. 
One thing I found really interesting about the previous episode where everybody switches costumes is they have like a, a fairly lengthy conversation about who can and cannot play Welfare Queen. And like nobody even thinks to have that same conversation about, um, you know, certainly Beirut, although like we've done that, con- you know, the conversation around Beirut in the, the first two seasons. Um, but there's no like nobody even thinks about like how offensive Fortune Cookie is. And I'm, I don't know, that's. Obviously, that sets up the big what you in the the rundown you called the C plot, and it just felt so much. And I guess like when you look at the first two uh, things that we talked about, you know, the Ruth and you know, is Debbie going to leave the show? Is Ruth in love with Sam and Sheila getting rid of the the wolf persona? Like th- those things are so Titanic within the world of Glow that it can't be bigger than that. But this is just like a huge investment in terms of time and, and emotional output it, within this episode. It almost feels weird to to say that it's the, you know, the the third string in this episode. Totally. And I really love that the show, like, gives these characters space to have really different reactions. Like, Tamei is obviously the one who proposed the switching characters because of her back, and so she's pretty much okay. And also Carmen mentions that she's part Black, so she feels, like, slightly more comfortable than if, like, a white character had played it. And Artie is just so relieved to, like, not be put in that situation anymore that she's not even bothered at all that a white woman is playing Beirut and doing a, like, really awful caricature. And Jenny is kind of the only one who really really, like, has that reaction. And none of those are seen as invalid. But I I do think this plotline, even though, as you mentioned, like, it's equally significant, but I called it the C-plot just because those characters don't get as much screen time usually. And yet, even when they're called up off the bench, you're like, oh, I, I already feel like I know these characters enough that this works. Like, Melrose's other big subplot this season is that she ends up, like, accidentally hiring a sex worker, and it's a very, like, spoofy, farcical, lighthearted thing. But in this episode, she talks about her Jewish identity and her family being Holocaust survivors, and it doesn't feel, you know, too abrupt or, like, it's contradictory at all with the person we knew before. And I, it's just really impressive to watch the show do that. One thing that I liked most about this subplot is there's a lot of like Jenny is sort of like the in addition, I, I think the what happened in episode five is sort of what drew it out, but like the even the the uh the male prostitute episode or episode or um um storyline, yeah. if you want to call it that, uh like a lot of that is just like these two are supposedly best friends and Melrose is just in, entirely self-absorbed like and Jenny is just finally pushing back against that. And obviously there are, you know, deeper uh, and, you know, more significant issues uh, at play in this episode. But that's, you know, that's really what what pushes this over the edge is that this is one person in a friendship, like realizing she's not getting everything that she needs out of it and that, you know, there's some, she's being hurt by somebody she's invested a lot into emotionally. Yeah, that's so right. It's like not just about the like, quote unquote, big issues of cultural appropriation and who gets to play who. It's about the very specific relationship between these two people. And yeah, so we get like a a moment early on where Jenny explains just like conceptually why she's so upset at Melrose and kind of talks about her own, like, psychological background and what it just means for her to be at a place like the Fantan. Every night, I put on a kimono to jump out of a fortune cookie at an Asian-themed hotel surrounded by white geishas serving Mai Tais. 
And... And... What do you mean, and? It's like I'm living in a nightmare. It sucks. Sorry, what does this have to do with me? Soy sauce in you eye, chopstick in you nose. Oh, come on. I wasn't doing an impression of you. I was doing you doing a racist character. But you're white. Don't look at me like that. We're best friends. I'm not like some fucking random white girl. Wow, you really do not understand. But, you know, Melrose being Melrose does not immediately respond to that. And so it takes later when the bulk of the of the characters have decided to stay in camp because they don't feel like going hiking. And they've improvised this dinner. Which is relatable. Man. Extremely relatable. That is absolutely how I act on every vacation. <laughs> I'm I'm going to uh, Costa Rica with my family in January, and this is going to be me the whole time. Um, but... You know, they make this dinner on, like, hubcaps, and then Melrose decides to hijack it a little bit and turn it into a Passover Seder, which I would like to add is, like, the jankiest Passover Seder I have ever seen in my life. There's no Seder plate. There's no hard-boiled eggs. There's no—nothing, like, actually makes it a Seder or the ritual observance of it, except that Melrose is, like, telling people what the ten plagues are. I mean, I just couldn't get over cooking off the inside of a hubcap like and, like— I met is she's using that as a pot and like pouring beans into it. One, one presumes instead of like, that's just gotta be dangerous. I feel like that you should get sick if you're eating off the inside of a hubcap, but uh, what do I know? This was the eighties. I guess disease <laughs> this is true. hadn't made its way to man. I, I just couldn't get over that. Yeah. Times were different. I, I don't even know if they had running water or if they washed it at all. That was tough. But yeah, so they they do that. And obviously, like, the story of Passover is a story of collective oppression, even though Melrose does railroad it a little bit and start just talking about her family. But it occasions this really touching moment where Jenny, obviously, she is um, Cambodian Chinese, which she explains earlier in the season is because the Chinese colonized a lot of the rest of Southeast Asia, and Asian identity is very complex. Um, but she is, she and her family are from Cambodia, and she has her own story of escaping oppression and being a refugee, and shares that, I think, in, like, really incredibly moving fashion during the Seder. We hit on a boat. We were pretty lucky. My dad, he, uh, he knew somebody at the embassy, so... We got one of the last flights out on a U.S. military plane that had just dropped off all this rice. My dad's brother was with us. But... Everyone else we knew died. Every relative, every friend, everyone. So, I understand what it's like to survive a genocide and we'll talk about it all the time. Fields. 
It's the whole reason I'm even here in the first place. <laughs> I get to be one of the lucky ones, like really, really, really lucky. <laughs> and now I'm jumping out of a fortune cookie every night, pretending like everything's fine. But yeah, I think this is really like the one of the pivotal scenes of the episode and something that that shows what Glow can do when it wants to. Yeah, definitely. And I think that what what keeps this from being like a very special episode is that there's a real sense of Jenny, Jenny who's like one of the least developed characters on the show, I think. Um, you get the sense of how long she's been holding that in and is, you know, it just feels good to j- just come out and and be frank about something that you're still carrying with you from, you know, from something that happened what I guess it would have been 10, 15 years ago in the, uh, in the timeline of the show and just having that bubble out in, you know, when it didn't exactly come up on its own, just, you know, come up as a result of another interpersonal conflict. And, you know, there's, it, this is just, it takes a lot to pull that off and just the everything from the the setup to the like the you can tell that everybody else is like going between being along for the ride and all of a sudden becoming extremely uncomfortable by the direction the the conversations taken and then just all coming together for that group hug and then uh at the very end the end the scene when uh the hiking group comes back and they say is it that's a prophet elijah and debbie says who the fuck's elijah and it's just like the perfect way to to cap off that scene without like to get into those heavy issues without having it you know sort of hang over the rest of the episode as you get back to the normal stakes of the show yeah also extremely accurate because there is no fucking way a character named debbie egan who is that blonde <laughs> knows what the prophet elijah is or how passover seder works but yeah one of the things i love about that earlier speech where jenny finally just opens up and like literally explains what it is like for her to walk the casino floor every day it puts you in the situation of a more self-absorbed character like melrose where you're like oh yeah i'm not conditioned to think about this character's inner life the way i am about Ruth's or Sam's or Debbie's. And so I just haven't even thought about what it's like for her to exist in this, like, chintzy, orientalist, mid-century fantasy because, you know, there's just not too much made of it. And then it allows you to both be surprised and a little blindsided by it, but it's also completely justified by everything we do know about this character and her history. Yeah, and it's, I mean, just to go back to the... Um, sort of broader point is like this is poking fun at, at like the a lot of the stereotypical humor that we just don't do anymore uh, and that was central to like culture in the 80s and wrestling in the 80s and now you know like the show there's a, a risk whenever you sort of when you comment on that that you're you know commenting on that is a way to get away with doing it and this is just a very thought it, you know and I think Glow does a good job of making sure that that's not what they're doing but this is the beginning of of we're seeing uh, these characters really grapple with with uh, you know the the cost of of some of these uh, you know some of the gags that they're doing that you know treating entire cultures as a gag is you know it has these harmful effects and you know we've talked about this before but it's you know we're it's really coming to a head now. 
Definitely. And I think both of us thought the resolution of it, where Jenny shares this story and Melrose immediately breaks down and everyone comes in for a group hug, was maybe, like, a little quick and pat. But also, again, like, this is fundamentally a sitcom at the end of the day, and it doesn't really feel, like, preachy or like a lesson. And it does set us up to go on to the rest of the season with, like, a deeper understanding of these people. Yeah, and it's... I mean, like... Obviously, these are huge issues, but this is not the the core of of the show. Like that's like I, I think what I said before is like bring it down to the original stakes. Like this is not the level on which Glow usually operates, and so it's good that you know we went there and and uh, that's in the background, and we're going to be, be thinking about that from now on. But you know, this is still a you know the slapstick and the the weird humor and it, you know all that is is back in the foreground now. Yes. And I mean, what's unbelievable is like as much as all that we just discussed was, and it's unbelievable that they even packed that into the 42 minute runtime of this episode, but there are still other plot lines that were There's either a lot touched going on, on. Yeah, either touched on or set up. And the fact that like, you know, those are three like big developed plot lines, and there's still more that they like squeeze into it without it feeling like overstuffed. And so, you know, Tamay just has has had this back injury and has been dealing with it all season. And through some conversations with Carmen, who knows the wrestling world a little better, and with Cherry and Debbie, who need to kind of put their foot down and say you can't really, like, wrestle the way you have been, they decide that Welfare Queen is going to become a manager instead of a wrestler. And I will confess, as a wrestling ignoramus, I had never heard of this concept. I, so, I'm, I don't do wrestling, but also, like, I follow a lot of, uh, socialists on Twitter and follow hockey. And these are apparently the two core uh, demographics for pro wrestling. So I've learned a lot <laughs> by osmosis. Um, but yeah, when, when they said that, when Carmen said, well, you could become a manager like Don King and uh, Tim A says, I could do Go- Don King. I think I like went, ooh, out loud. Like that's, I'm very excited to see what, what direction that's going. Cause I, I think that like, I'm glad that they're, weirdly like these people feel like enough like real people that like i started to get worried for that you know so i'm glad that we're not going to see see her suffer a a grievous injury on the mat while she's trying to gut it out um but this is i think this is an exciting narrative direction because the show like we're not seeing it that much and when we are seeing it it it's got this like familiar like we know the you know, we know the show well enough now that when we're seeing excerpts from it in the course of an episode, it feels familiar. But I think like it is cool. You know, I, I think it is time for them to to shake it up a little bit. Definitely. And I think something they're really good at stakes wise is like really impressing that this is super important to these people and they're they're risking a lot and you really are worried for someone like Tamay. But also like because it is fundamentally a comedy, things do tend to work out, but it doesn't feel like magic. It feels earned. And Another thing I just really love about the show is I do think they understand that the core demographic for Glow is not necessarily the same as the one for pro wrestling, even though there absolutely is some overlap. And so they work in, like, explainers of concepts, like what a manager is, just in the same way that early seasons talk about what kayfabe is and help Mm -hmm. you to understand and learn a little bit. And another plot line that we got some development on here is the relationship between Yolanda and Artie. And they have been, you know, basically just figuring out how to, like, be in a relationship after they decided that they were in love and attracted to each other last season. And this episode really, like, pushes their relationship to what seems like kind of a breaking point. Yeah, I don't I don't know if they 
broke up necessarily because they made the big point about how, you know, this isn't a breakup. This is a fight and fights happen. Yeah, now, I I don't know. I'm I'm team Artie on this one. I don't think, she, you know, she's under a lot of pressure to figure out exactly who she is right this moment. And I think Yolanda should be, you know, more uh, more accommodating of that. Uh, yeah, I, I agree that like Artie is ultimately in the right and Yolanda should be more compassionate towards her girlfriend and what she's going through. But I also, again, like I understand Yolanda's baggage of like, you know, she has lived more of her life as an out gay woman. She has dealt with more of the consequences. And, you know, your partner is someone that you want to look to for solidarity. And when Yolanda's like, okay, finally, I have someone who I can commiserate over this with and bond about this with. And Artie just has her own, like, figuring out how she identifies thing going on. Mm-hmm. And so, again, like, the show is just so great at conflict where it's like, both of these people are grownups and they're not acting like children and just like breaking up because they had a single fight. But also like this makes sense as as a point of real disagreement between the two yeah. of them. I mean, we just had the same conflict as a running, you know, running storyline on Grey's Anatomy. So I, I hope that this storyline ends as happily as theirs did. Wow. You and Juliet Littman are like the we two are the only ones. Staffers. We're the only ones who still watch it. Listen, I appreciate that commitment. I, too, will be watching Glow if it is still going in its 15th season. Um, But yeah, I think that pretty much brings us to the end of Outward Bound and the stuff that happens in it. But is there anything that you're particularly looking forward to for the rest of the season? I'm looking forward to, like, talking about Carmen being interested in guys. I thought that was, like, I love the season or the scene between her and Rhonda in the, the car. Like, like... Like, wow, this is, and that's another thing that, like, this is a long episode for Glow, but, like, a ton happened in, in these 42 minutes. And I think, like, that's something that that they've really glossed over, and Carmen's sort of taken a backseat and become, like, the just the wrestling expert after she was one of the, the, you know, one of the key figures in the show, one of the key supporting characters in the very early run. And uh, Carmen's one of my favorites, and if this is an omen for more of her, I am very excited for that. Yeah, I agree. I love that conversation because it's also like a little bit meta. Like, it's one of those things where TV often has these side characters who are only comic or only supportive and end up being like totally desexualized and having her be like, yeah, like, obviously I'm not like... I got needs. Yeah, like, I'm not Kate Nash and I'm not Betty Gilpin so I'm not, you know, treated as a leading lady, but like, I'm a human. Like, I I have interests and I really, really love that scene, which again, it's just like one scene in a 42-minute episode. But yeah, I totally agree there. I am excited to see how the rest of the season plays out. And until then, thank you guys so much for listening. This has been an episode of The Recapables, and you can check out the feed for more discussions of television shows. 